Good morning, Westside. It is a pleasure to open scripture with you this morning. My name is John Wayne. I am probably one of the shyer members of my family, so you may not know me well. Uh, you may know me better as Tanya's husband, or Cassia's dad, Carter's dad, uh, Sydney's dad, Sophia's neighbor. Uh, actually, I'll, I'm going to get punched for that. That's a bit of an inside family joke that I will, I will definitely pay for. At any rate, it is, uh, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning, and as I said, to share God's word and uh, to continue our series, Living Psalm 23. And let's begin together uh, reading Psalm 23. As, as David has mentioned a few times, uh, we are reading a variety of translations as we look at the psalm, and so we'll begin this morning, we're going to read the new King James Version, uh, which maybe you haven't dusted off for a while. But we'll read the New King James Version, uh, but as I speak, we will be frequently referring to the New Revised Standard Version. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul, he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's open in prayer with the words, uh, the, the closing words of Psalm 19. Let the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, David Manifo has walked us through some of the more pleasant parts uh, at the beginning of Psalm 23. And with verse 4, the focus of the message this morning, we turn to a little darker place. Psalm 23, verse 4 in the New Revised Standard Version says, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Have you ever had to face your fears to overcome a dark and threatening situation? When I think of childhood, I think of needing to go into the basement and running to the lights to turn them on, or I think of entering my bedroom uh, at night, at, at dark, and leaping to make sure that I could get on the bed without something grabbing my ankles from under the bed. Now, I grew up the uh, fourth of five children, and so there was every chance that something was under my bed and was going to grab my ankles at that point. Uh, maybe you've been lost downtown at night, or maybe in a foreign city uh, you've been traveling and you've had to find your way at night, and you've had this feeling of, of threat of darkness overwhelming you. Uh, perhaps you've had to walk through a dark and threatening parking lot at night uh, or through a park, gripping your car keys as, as a weapon and uh, fearing something might happen on the way to your vehicle. Uh, one of my moments of, uh, of a dark valley or the darkest valley occurred when a friend and I were trying to figure out what to do an evening about 25 years ago, uh, my friend Mark and I, and we finally decided, after a lot of deliberation, that we would go off-roading in my Jeep Cherokee. And I was living in Abbotsford, 
So we got into my Jeep and we drove to Mission, which was about 15, 20 minutes away. We drove through Mission, went past it down Dudney Trunk Road and up beside Stave Lake. And almost as though we had point A and point B mapped out, we, we turned off of the main road, we're right, uh, driving along the lake and I got stuck and that was it. Nothing else was going to happen. The, the uh, Cherokee was not moving. And we realized quickly that we were going to have to walk out. And at this point, it was pitch black. And we uh, had this fear of, well, what if there are people running around in the forest? What if people are growing you know, weeds and drugs in the bush? How will we protect ourselves as we walk? And so fortunately, I had an axe in the back of my truck. So I picked up the axe and carried it. And my friend Mark, uh, being very... Uh, uh, industrious, he found a watermelon-sized rock, and he carried that for about 25 steps before he realized it wouldn't work out well. And we made our way to the main road, and as headlights would come by, I'd throw my axe in the ditch, and we'd flag the car down and see if they'd give us a ride. And after about three or four tries, uh, finally someone offered to give us a ride. I left my axe in the ditch and retrieved it later. I figured they probably wouldn't want me to bring my axe into the car as they're giving strangers a ride. Uh, but that was one of my experiences of a dark valley and feeling, you know, threatened by the darkness, threatened by the night, and uh, looking for some means of comfort. King David, the author of Psalm 23, uses the darkest valley as a metaphor related to the work of a shepherd caring for his sheep. The metaphor means something because of familiarity with walking in uncertainty and trepidation through the darkest valleys and seeking comfort in them. And the main point that I want to articulate this morning, the main point I want to express that I believe is coming out of verse 4 in Psalm 23 is that we're not to fear evil or be surprised by it, but we are to walk through it with God. Now, I want to take a few moments and clarify this metaphor what counts as darkest valleys or as the valley of the shadow of death? Uh, the darkest valley is a place where evil is real and there is an evident threat. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, the psalmist writes. Uh, the passage, as it's written in Hebrew, includes the word ra, meaning bad. Uh, it's translated in most versions as evil, and it's frequently used in opposition to the good. And we see in Scripture that uh, this, this reference to darkness or this metaphor of darkness is used in a number of places to state this, this feeling of threat. In Job 24, 17, uh, it's written, uh, For deep darkness is morning to all of them, for they are friends with the terrors of deep darkness. In Psalm 107, verse 10 and 14, the sense of deep gloom is, is brought about. Uh, some sat in darkness and in gloom, prisoners in misery and in irons. He brought them out of darkness and gloom and broke their bonds asunder. In Isaiah, the prophet writes, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. Again, in the book of Psalms and in the book of Jeremiah, uh, there's a sense of deep distress uh, yet you have broken us in the haunt for jackals and covered us with deep darkness in Psalm 44, verse 19. And then in Jeremiah uh, 2, verse 6, the prophet refers to this extreme danger. And he, writing of the Israelites, he said, they did not say, 
Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in the land of deserts and pits, in a land brought uh, of drought and deep darkness, in a land that no one passes through, where no one lives? This, this sense of, of extreme danger that the prophet speaks to is one that Bruce Waltke, uh, an Old Testament scholar, also refers to in, in uh, Psalm 23, verse 4. He categorizes this mention of uh, extreme darkness, of deep darkness, as this extreme danger. So while fitting with the poetic framework of terror and deep gloom and deep distress, we investigate the, uh, the darkest valley that uh, David refers to in Psalm 23. What is the threat of evil that lays in the valleys of darkness we face? What is it that we are not to fear, as the psalmist tells us? Well, let's think a bit about what evil is. What do we mean when we talk about evil? And if evil is, is the threat that lies in the uh, darkest valley, uh, what do we mean by this? Well, Thomas Aquinas uh, referred to evil as the absence of, of good. And uh, N.T. Wright, when, excuse me, when talking about evil in his book, Evil and the Justice of God, uh, he says, if you're not sure you know, what we mean when we say evil is the absence of good, well, then think of a ladder that is missing a rung. Or, and uh, N.T. Wright lived in Montreal for a number of years, uh, think of a pothole on the, uh, on the road, uh, perhaps one on one of the uh, uh, side uh, service roads uh, next to the highway here, or on the highway itself, right? Where something's lacking, there is a problem. C.S. Lewis talks about uh, evil as spoiled goodness. And evil in that sense is a parasite. It can only, it relies on goodness for its very existence. And so when we think about evil, we must also think about suffering, because evil and suffering come hand in hand. Paul Ricoeur says, all evil committed by one person is evil undergone by another person. Evil committed by someone finds its other half in the evil suffered by someone else. Darkest valleys are those places and times that human beings are under the threat of evil and face the reality of suffering. We have our own sense of the darkest valley right now, uh, a more universal or global sense of what it means to be in the darkest valley. And when we think of, of evil, often philosophers will categorize evil in two ways. One is, is natural evil. These are sufferings and general threats to human life caused by such things as bacteria and disease, the destructive effects of natural disasters like droughts, earthquakes, hurricanes, and tsunamis, and the inevitability of death then is the ultimate terror of nature. So COVID-19 provides us with a contemporary example of what we might refer to as a natural evil. Moral evil, these we refer to as sufferings and general threats to human life caused by physical abuse, crime, war, terrorism, and the like, as well as destructive vices and the human damage that they cause. More recently, uh, we've been focused on issues of systemic racism and generational suffering that results from this. And these are prime examples of moral evil, evil coming about directly from human action. Now we may say, what is my responsibility here when we talk about evil? And we may actually distance ourselves 
from evil to some degree. Because we think of evil as something that is in the darkest valleys, that it is occurring somewhere else, that it doesn't necessarily involve me. We don't think of ourselves as evil. We don't think of our loved ones as evil. Most of the time, we don't think of them as evil. Right? We think of it as something somewhere else. It's someone else's issue. It can be our problem, but it generates from somewhere else. We also often think of, of sin and evil in terms of brokenness. We think of our world as a broken place and that sin and evil are these marks of that brokenness. But where does responsibility for that brokenness lie? How did this world get broken? Richard Plantiga and his co-authors uh, in their book, An Introduction to Christian Theology, Theology, define sin as our culpable disruption of shalom. They say sin is our culpable disruption of shalom. It's a very rich definition of sin. We might think of sin as that thing that I did, the bad thing I did. We might even think of it as, well, it's the good thing I didn't do. I should have done it, but I didn't do it. We might even push ourselves further to think about our own inclinations and our will and might say, yeah, I desire some bad things. I realize that. And that leads to some of my bad actions. But what Plantinga is saying is, well, what sin is, is it's this culpable disruption of shalom. It is this, we have this, we bear this responsibility because of human action, because of Adam and Eve's action, because of our own actions. We bear this responsibility for the disruption of God's created order, his perfect order. And we need to recognize evil as something that is not only a problem for us, but a problem which we bear responsibility for. We bear this responsibility. A failure to clearly understand sin and evil then leads to a, what is, I think, a pervasive problem. We're often surprised by the darkest valleys. We're often surprised by evil. We tend to primarily think of sin and evil as brokenness, and then through our own building of knowledge and our own technique and expertise and our, our diligence, we're able to resolve the problems that this world presents us with. This is this, this myth of, of progress. This is the idea that uh, you know, a, a democratic society, a place where we can just all get along, that's gonna solve our deepest rifts, our deepest problems. Uh, but the myth of progress uh, or an overestimation of what a democratic society, what democratic institutions can accomplish and what uh, scientific advancement can accomplish, this is a part of our problem. We think the problem of sin, the problem of evil, is too easily abolished. As a result, we are often surprised by evil. We're surprised when things don't go well because we think, hey, it's, it's 2020. That's maybe a bad example because 2020 has become kind of synonymous with things not going well. We used to say, though, it's 2019. Things should be different. Haven't we progressed? Aren't we, aren't we better than this now? And yet we're constantly surprised by evil. We're constantly surprised by the difficulties we face. We're constantly surprised by the bad things our neighbors do. We're constantly surprised by the bad things we do. We should not be surprised. Looking again to N.T. Wright's book, Evil and the Justice of God, he refers to this as the new problem of evil. He says, we ignore evil until it smacks us in the face. 
That's why it's important for us to have a good understanding of sin and its impact on this world. Because it's, it's our tendency often to just ignore sin, ignore evil, until it smacks us in the face and can't be ignored. We are then surprised when it does. And thirdly, he says, we then react in immature and dangerous ways. This new problem of evil, we ignore evil, we're surprised when it smacks us in the face, and we then respond in uh, immature and dangerous ways when it does. Does that sound like anyone you know? Does it sound like uh, the society that we live in? Does it sound like, unfortunately, the, the ways that we respond to evil? I know I don't always respond in appropriate ways. I know I don't always respond with the maturity that somebody with my years behind me should have. I don't respond with the maturity that someone who has walked this long with the Lord should respond with. So this, this imagery of evil is something, there's something mundane here that we need to recognize. That evil is a part of this world. It is a part of our everyday life. It is a part of our own struggles in this world. But the imagery of the darkest valley also brings to mind more horrific forms of evil. It brings uh, to mind uh, the darkest valleys and the evil threats lurking therein that is more along the lines of unspeakable acts, horrendous evils, unfortunately ones that we've witnessed in Quebec recently, the evils of a father killing his own daughters, right? These unspeakable acts. So let's not forget that unspeakable evil occurs in our world. Let's not be surprised by that. Let's struggle against it. Let's fight against it. The gospel calls us to do that. The psalmist calls us to do that. But we need to know how to struggle and how to fight against it. So with some of this clarification, hopefully clarification for you, of the metaphor, the darkest valley, let's return to the text. Verse 4, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, I'd like to explore this part of the passage even further, but we don't have time to do that. But the question that it raises for me is, is David's response to evil too simple? Is he taking full enough account of evil? Is he taking it seriously enough? Is it enough to say, you are with me? I fear no evil, for you are with me. Well, David's not naive, and he is familiar with the darkest of valleys. He faced predators as a shepherd, bear, lion. He faced the giant, Goliath. He faced a violent and jealous king in Saul. He faced enemy armies of many varieties. He was familiar with the darkest of valleys. He also faced evil from within himself and the dire consequences that followed. The consequences of his own adultery and his own act of murder. He saw the rape of his daughter Tamar by her half-brother. The resulting violence as his son Absalom uh, sought vengeance. Later, as his son Absalom sought to uh, usurp him as, as king. And he faced his own responsibility for this mess, confronted by the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 12. So I think it's unfair and inaccurate 
to suggest that David is offering a you are with me uh, as a platitude. When he says you are with me, I think there's some richness underlying it. It's not unreflective. It's not unthoughtful. It's not a trite statement about evil and suffering. David was quite in touch with the darkest valleys of life and the threats lurking within them, even the threat of evil coming from within himself. As he wrote in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. And you can go to Psalm 51 and read further David's awareness of his sin, awareness of his evil acts, and throwing himself before God. You are with me is a simply stated response to evil, but it is not simplistic. David understood well the darkness of the valleys and the depth of the evil about which he wrote. He also seemed to understand well the power of the reality that Yahweh was with him. You are with me is fleshed out further in Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light around me become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. This is the God who is with you through the darkest valleys. The lyrics of uh, the blessing, that ubiquitous YouTube worship song of the early days of the pandemic, state this well. May his presence go before you and behind you and beside you, all around you and within you. He is with you. He is with you. Walter Brueggemann, the writer of the message of the Psalms, writes about Psalm 23, verse 4, and he says this. It is God's companionship that transforms every situation. It does not mean there are not deathly valleys, no enemies, but they are not capable of hurt. And so the powerful loyalty and solidarity of Yahweh comfort precisely in situations of threat. It is the vitality of the relationship which transforms. Why should we fear no evil? Bruce Waltke adds to this, we fear no evil because the good shepherd, our companion through the darkest valley, the one who meets our every need, as David Manifo has been walking us through, he is fully equipped to this task. His rod fends off predators. His staff guides the sheep. Both are saving tools. The darkest valley is not a safe place, but the good shepherd is mighty to save. It is the good shepherd who turns darkness to light. In John 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's close with the words of, of Martin Luther, a reformer from the 16th century who spoke of the reality of suffering and the Christian life. He seemed to understand the threat of evil that Christians face. He wrote this in his, uh, on councils in the church. The holy Christian people must undergo every misfortune and persecution 
all kinds of trials and evil from the devil, the world and the flesh, as the Lord's Prayer indicates, by inward sadness, timidity, fear, outward poverty, contempt, illness, weakness, in order to become like their head, Christ. And the only reason they must suffer is that they steadfastly adhere to Christ and God's word, enduring this for the sake of Christ. We don't go through the darkest valleys to valorize suffering, nor do we evade the valley out of fear. We go through it with and before God. Luther did not hold that suffering is significant for its own sake. We don't suffer for suffering's sake. Christians are to rely on God alone through the darkest valley. He will see us through. King David in Psalm 23 put it this way, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. In the darkest valley where good appears entirely absent, we walk with the one who is good and is pure goodness. Do not fear evil and don't be surprised by it either. Walk with God through it. And let's pray Romans 8, 35 to 39 to close. Who shall separate us from the Messiah's love? Suffering or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As the Bible says, because of you we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep destined for slaughter. No, in all these things we are completely victorious through the one who loved us. I am persuaded, you see, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor the present, nor the future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God in King Jesus our Lord.